This is the Wellington edition of The Water Cooler. I'm your host and producer, Alice Brine. Each month, we bring you real and imagined tales from all areas of life. These stories were told live on the Water Cooler stage of Bats Theatre in Wellington. The theme of the evening was waiting, stories from somewhere in the queue. Please note, these stories were performed live and the language and themes may not be for everyone. Our first storyteller is performer and stand-up comedian Freya Demaray. Freya had actually been performing at Bats already this evening in her show Live Orgy, which, if ever is in a town near you, I definitely recommend bringing your parents. Tonight, Freya tells a story that she wouldn't normally tell on stage, involving resting baby bitch face, social anxiety, and ripped trousers. Freya Demaray, please. <laughs> Uh, I just want to point out, before anybody else notices it, that yes, I do have a tear in my crotch. (laughs) That's a thing that happened, so good. I can't afford jeans. Pay me. Um, Okay. Uh, yeah, so as I said, this is a story that um, I, I can't tell um, as a stand-up because it's just a little bit too dark, but anyway, here it goes. Um, so I don't really know when my anxiety started. Uh, it feels like it's always been there. As a small child, I was shy and clingy. Um, I remember hiding behind my mum's legs a lot. And I was quite a pretty baby, thanks very much. Um, <laughs> and mum said that people used to coo at me in the supermarket Um, while I would just give them my newly hatched but nonetheless on-point resting bitch face. Um, And so I actually text my mum today, because last minute, uh, and I I asked my mum if she had any other anecdotes about my seriousness as a baby or my shyness as a kid, and she had very adorably said this. Well, Granny was always asking me if you were a depressed baby. You were so serious. You would have made a good poker player when you were two. (laughs) Somehow I think that's unlikely. (laughs) And going around the supermarket was always slow because you were beautiful and people would stop to look at you and try to make you smile. Major fail. (laughs) You would look right through them. And then you'd smile at us, though. To me, strangers are just that, strange. And it seems that I've wanted nothing to do with them from early on. And it's hard to know which came first out of my shyness and my social anxiety, but they definitely seem to be related and mutually inclusive. So I grew up, and as everyone does, I adapted. I feel I've had moments where I can turn on a facade uh, that helps me move through the world like a normal person whatever that is. Um, My career choice as a performer in the public eye often demands it of me, and I think that I'm pretty good at faking it about 60% of the time, Um, which is an all right statistic, I think. (laughs) Um, One that I made up myself. Um, (laughs) Generous. So as a teenager, I became uh, boisterous around my friends, and among them, I think it would be fair to say that I'm quite assertive and confident, um, even an extrovert. Um, At least I can project that most of the time. But I think, like most people, I feel uncomfortable and awkward uh, around unknown people, 
and this manifests to varying degrees according to my current mood and how mentally well I am. Um, so in 2012, I had a massive bout of depression uh, to the point where I was seriously considering suicide. Um, luckily for me, I told my mum and uh, how I was feeling and I was on a plane uh, back to Tauranga um, to the family home the very next day. Um, so I lived at home from March 2012 to October 2014 when mum and dad moved to Melbourne and chucked me out the heartless bastards. <laughs> Just kidding, it was a coincidence uh, as I was well enough to go out on my own again. Um, but let's be honest, I probably would have gone with them if I could. So during this time, I experienced lots of pretty hilarious moments as a part of my experience of having mental illness. And this is a story about how my social anxiety can sometimes be so strong that it makes me go to extreme lengths to avoid people. I wrote a show uh, with some darkly funny stories, but I couldn't include all of the stories that I had. Um, and this is one of my favourites that fell through the gaps. Um, I just wanted... I always wanted to tell the story as a stand-up story, as I mentioned. Um, but yeah, it's just got that slight twinge of sad that just doesn't really translate in a comedy club. Um, uh, so, but I really don't want you to feel sad for me. Um, social anxiety is annoying, probably just like how ADHD is annoying uh, sometimes, but it's, uh, it's just another part of me. Um, and I think this story is hilarious and ridiculous, and I hope you do too. So... The family home in Tauranga uh, is a two-storied number uh, with a totally illegal flat underneath it. Um, we used to rent it out, um, but then mum and dad found out that uh, the planning permission was never given for the flat, so it's actually illegal to rent it out. Um, so we had to stop that. Um, so we have this self-contained flat underneath our house uh, that is just not being used. Um, and upstairs has three bedrooms as well. Um, and mum had been working as a receptionist at a physio uh, with this young English physiotherapist named Claire and struck up a bit of a friendship with her. Um, it, came, it came up one day that Claire uh, would have to live in a hotel for a couple of weeks in between flats, so mum offered that she live in our flat for free. A totally lovely thing to do. I was told of this and felt slightly apprehensive about it all, um, at, as, as, at that time, I was quite unwell. So naturally, the idea of a stranger coming to live with us, albeit independently, was kind of terrifying at the time. But I had no choice, and I certainly don't expect the world to work around my mental illness uh, like that. I, I just need to harden up. No, just kidding. <laughs> But those are the challenges of real life, and you can't really get around them. So one freezing cold winter night before Claire was due to move in, I was sitting in the lounge on my computer, my natural habitat. Um, I reckon if the internet is a spe whole special world for socially anxious people, then Tumblr is their country of origin. <laughs> and Facebook is a terrifying foreign land. Um, and computer games are an idyllic island paradise. <laughs> so the doorbell rang and the dogs went mental and mum opened the door and I heard a foreign voice. Well, not a foreign voice. <laughs> not a voice with an accent. 
I'm socially anxious, not racist. Okay. <laughs> and so, just to explain the layout of the house, because it's kind of important to the story. So, say this, this here is the lounge, like these guys are in the lounge. The, there's a, yeah, there was a door right there, perfect. So there's a door, <laughs> there's a door over to, to the left, left-hand side of the room, and through that back wall is some double doors out onto a deck, that, and the deck hangs over the top of the flat. Um, and the front door is through those doors and, uh, and that way. I'm just hyper aware that this is gonna be a podcast. <laughs> But fuck it, you should have you should have showed up. Um, so yeah, so the door was through there, and um, the front door was there, and and then the kitchen is like there's a wall in front of me here, and the kitchen's on that side. And so Claire came into the house, and she went into the kitchen, and I was in the lounge here, and each each of the like the lounge, then my parents' bedroom, and then my bedroom along are along this side of the house, and each one of those rooms has a door out to the deck. Sweet. Do you have a vague idea? <laughs> Good. Um, okay. So, um, so I still hadn't been seen, and I hadn't uh, hadn't yet had to say hello. Um, and this is how I know it would have gone if I had just gone through and got it over with. I wrote this as a script. Me. Hello. I'm Freya. Claire. Hello. I'm Claire. Me. Nice to meet you. Claire, nice to meet you too. Stage direction, Freya leaves. <laughs> Pretty simple. <laughs> but social anxiety is a thing because it's irrational. Um, almost everybody feels a bit nervous about meeting someone new, but they're not irrational about it. I may have been a bit irrational. Um, so first of all, I sat frozen for like one whole minute, which is a long time to be sitting there with your pulse racing, trying to think of the best way to escape, just so you don't have to say hello to someone. Um, so I realized suddenly that time was of the essence, uh, that I needed to, to disappear before I was required to say hello. So I did this. I opened the door out to the deck. The wind was blowing a gale and it was properly pouring down. I stepped outside. I closed the door as quietly as I could. I was in a t-shirt with no bra on underneath and summer pajama pants, bare feet. The deck was so cold, the kind of cold that seeps directly into your bones. Now I'm on the deck. <laughs> what do I do? I'll hide. I'll wait it out. No, I know. I'll sneak down to my bedroom and I'll slip in there. No one will see me there and I can hide in there. I creep to the outside door to my room and it's locked. Fuck. So I sneak back, the deek, the deek, the deek, the deek <laughs> creaking under my feet to the bit of the outside wall where there's no window because it's like windows and doors together, and then there's gaps where there's no, no door. Um, you get it. Uh, 
safety. It's cold though. Cold is an understatement. This is all so Oh, so remember, this is also I don't have to have a four-sentence conversation with someone. <laughs> it's too cold. I'll have to wait out here for at least half an hour to an hour. So I do. <laughs> well, I wait 20 minutes, but it feels like an hour. In this time, it becomes apparent that I need to wait. <laughs> this is exacerbated somewhat, as I'm sure you understand, by the cold the rain, and of course, waiting. If you have to wait to wee, you almost certainly will wee yourself. <laughs> like that time that I walked home from school one day needing to wee, and just as I put the key in the door, it all came. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I need to wee, and I'm outside, and I can't go in because the scary monster is inside. And now I need to go in and go to the toilet, but I can't possibly, because, because of where the toilet is, I will almost certainly be seen. So I wait. Five minutes. Ten. My bladder is so full, and it's all I can think about, because I'm outside, soaking wet now, wind blowing on my wet clothes and skin. 15 minutes. I have to go. I try mum and dad's room. It's locked too. I'll have to go back through the lounge. And oh no, I'll have to, now, now that I'm soaking wet, it will draw attention to me and I'll have to explain it and oh my god, how am I going to do that? It doesn't matter. I need to wee. I have to go back inside. So I take a deep breath and I put my hand on the door and it's locked. <laughs> I must have locked it when I closed it coming out. Oh shit. I'm screwed. There is no way I'm going to call for help because then I'd have to explain myself, as I said. And although that, that scenario was actually inevitable, remember, we're in a rational territory right now, so there's no logic. So, I dropped my pants. <laughs> and I squat. I popped a squat and I weed, okay? <laughs> and our deck, like a lot of decks, is a timber slatty deck. <laughs> so, there are little gaps in it. And the gaps between, uh, you know, the little gaps between the timber slabs. And then I heard voices. <laughs> they weren't in my head, they were IRL. <laughs> they were downstairs under the deck. In front of the flat, Mum was showing Claire the flat. What a nice thing to do. But here I was, two metres above them, weeing onto the deck, and that wee was going straight through to the ground below, where Mum and Claire were. With all my might, I managed to stem the flow and watch through the gaps that neither of them got too close to my effluvium. Claire got to about 20 centimetres within it. 
Luckily, of course, it was raining heavily, so everything was washing away, and the sound of the rain blocked out the sound of my own downpour as they approached. But it was a close call. So have I learned anything? Not really. I could easily end up in that situation again, because that's just the nature of social anxiety, really. I just hope the next time I have an umbrella and maybe a bucket. Thank you. Our second speaker for the evening is actually my partner in comedy crime, Daniel John Smith. Daniel is an award-winning stand-up comedian who has taken the New Zealand scene by storm. Daniel and I had a show in the comedy festival entitled How to Fold a Fitted Sheet, which was nominated for the Best Newcomer Award. Tonight, Daniel tells us a story of texting his parents, office fashion trends, and light-hearted terminal illness. If I could get everyone to put their hands together for my favourite comedian in the world, Daniel John Smith. Thank you. Uh, very similar to Freya, this is something which is um, a bit darker than my usual stand-up, which people also say is dark. <laughs> but don't at any point feel like you can't laugh. Because I am always laughing inside. <laughs> I, uh, I work in an office and I like to get clothes delivered to work. And any time someone does this, uh, we like to have, well, I like to force people to have a, uh, a fashion show. <laughs> so you get all your new items and put them on and show them off. And I, one particular afternoon, I'd got a package delivered. I was pretty excited. Taking a few items out, I was ready to, ready to do the fashion show. Um, and then I noticed I had a text on my phone. And I picked it up and read it. It was just, just a two-word text. And you can write good two-word texts. Love you, that's a nice two-word text. Um, another good one would be like, I'm here. You can, <laughs> you, can, you can text that to just a random number. <laughs> and just wait about five minutes and then be like, behind you. <laughs> this particular text this day was uh, from my mum. And classic mum text, no punctuation, all lowercase. The two words that she's gone with are, have cancer. Uh, it's, a, it's a statement, obviously. She's not, she's not offering me cancer. I have some cancer. I had some spare cancer. If you think about it, all cancer is spear cancer. Um, I told my workmates what had happened because I knew that I was about to get kind of shaky and crazy and sad. Um, and, you know, I, I called back my mum, no answer. Uh, I texted her and I was like, you know, what cancer? What did the doctor say? Where are you? Uh, and then I, then I was just waiting. <laughs> and I know what you're thinking. Betty cancelled that fashion show. 
I did not cancel that fashion show. <laughs> First item up was a hat that I'd got. Uh, it's a red and white woolen beanie with a pom-pom and it was sort of decorated with deer. And I put that on my head and uh, I sort of tried to pull it over my entire body and hide from the world. But it only sort of came down to about eye level. And I was feeling a little crazy, and I said to my roommates, oh, look at this hat. It's, this is a good, you know, this would keep your noggin warm if you, need, need, if you lost your hair or something. <laughs> Chemotherapy. <laughs> just off the top of my head. Uh, I was getting a little crazy, and I was, I was taking that stress out on the workmates. Because um, I, I looked at the deer on the hat, and it mainly made me think about Bambi. I was like, ah, oh. because Bambi's mother lived along and for, oh, no, wait, no, that's the opposite of that. That's the plot of Bambi. I checked my phone, still no response from mum, which is frustrating, um, probably for both of us, because it's frustra frustrating for me because she's so good with her phone. One time I was at university, she called me up, Answer the phone, hey mum, how's it going? No answer. Just kind of shuffling sounds, like I think I've been pocket dialed. And uh, when someone pocket dials me, I always stay on the line for a few minutes, because now it's like I've bugged a friend. Um, I did get pocket dialed recently by my dad, he's a school teacher, and I, I heard him telling off this bad kid. And uh, later that night, I called him up and I was like, Dad, what you said to Joseph today was entirely justified. <laughs> he was like, what are, what are you talking about? I said, Dad, it's all over the news. <laughs> but don't worry. Everyone's on your side. <laughs> and then I hung up. And I... I know that sounds mean, uh, but in my defence, it's very fun to confuse dads. Uh, but this, this time that my mum called me at university, it wasn't an accident. She was just taking the time to position the phone properly because she needed both hands and her voice to play the guitar and sing me Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine. <laughs> she thinks I'm a sweet child which means she loves me a lot. Might not know me that well. <laughs> but the fashion show isn't over. Uh, next up, I had a jacket that I'd gotten. Um, but I bought it because it looked really warm in the picture. What I didn't realise until I unpacked it and saw this really fancy logo on it was that it was coated in Teflon, like a non-stick pan. It's amazing, you wear it and it's like wearing the future. <laughs> but I said to my workmates, I was like, look, Teflon, check this out. And I sort of tilted my face so a single tear <laughs> just ran down my face and just so fast off that jacket. <laughs> Gone, I said. Just like my mum might be soon. <laughs> At that point, my workmates were sort of circling me like sharks that prey on crazy sadness. And they kind of descended in this group hug 
because they didn't know what else to do. Um, but I, I sort of had to communicate them that this was, this was nice, but these kind of darkly comic jabs, that was my way of coping with the situation. And the way I told, sort of decided to let them know that was to loudly exclaim, Oh, but were this heart coated in Teflon? <laughs> so that nothing could touch it. Worried about my mum though, so I checked my phone. Again, nothing, still waiting. <laughs> She's strong though, I don't like, for starters, uh, this is a woman who was an accountant for 20 years, got bored and became a prison guard. <laughs> this is a woman who, during my youth, won over 70% of my family's Christmas time women's only arm wrestling championships. <laughs> each time reclaiming the title of matriarch for another year. <laughs> also, also at this point, this is the third time she's had cancer, so I don't really know what I'm worried about. <laughs> but the last item at the fashion show uh, was a t-shirt that I'd got for a theme party. The theme was douchebag. Um, so I got myself a t-shirt that said FBI female body inspector. <laughs> so I was gonna dress really well for that party. But I looked at the t-shirt and I was like, oh, I wish we had more female body inspectors. <laughs> or doctors. Because early detection really is the best chance that we have. Later that evening at the hospital, after I tracked mum down, found her, uh, and she explained to me there was a, like an 80% chance that she'd be fine. She was, and she, in retrospect, I can tell you that she, she was fine. Um, could have told you that at the start, but I didn't. <laughs> but she explained it was all fine, and uh, she apologised for the two-word text, which she didn't have to do, but she was right to do. <laughs> And after all that, I just, I poured a glass of water on my arm. And she was like, what are you doing? And I said, don't worry, mum, it's coated in Teflon. <laughs> and like everything else about me, she thought that was confusing, but really cool. <laughs> Thank you. Our third storyteller for tonight is writer, performer and comedian Alice May Connolly. Alice tells us a story she described as a not-dark memory from when she was a child that shaped her into who she is today. Can I please get everybody to get their hands together for Alice May Connolly, please? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I've tried to, like, make this, like, kind of like a story. And um, so there's, like, the story part, but then there's like some examples of like other real life experiences with that might have like um, influenced and then there's kind of like a, a conclusion. <laughs> Just so you know, when you think the story's gonna end, it's not going to. <laughs> Okie dokie, right. I'm four years old and I'm hiding under the covers at the very base of my parents' bed 
because I'm about to get the biggest, most professional smack bottom of my entire life. <laughs> there has never been a smack bottom as big and red and blotchy with broken butt capillaries <laughs> as the smack bottom that is about to happen to me. My mum dialed the smack bottom truck and I'm waiting at the factory to be exported to sleeping on your stomach for the rest of your life's bill. <laughs> or worse. <laughs> I'm waiting there. <laughs> Hiding, terrified, desperately trying to become another fold in the fitted sheets. My heart is palpitating, my breath is shallow, I'm imagining the oxygen under the heavy duvet slowly depleting like an underwater diver whose oxygen tank has run out and there's a warning sing signal coming from somewhere like beep, 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 beep. <laughs> I'm four and I'm already preoccupied with death. <clears throat> Not that I really get it, but I know it's bad and I know it's probably very close to what is about to happen to me or at least my butt. I'm four years old and I'm waiting to die and I bloody hope there is an afterlife or at least can I please get reincarnated as my favourite flower, forget-me-not. <laughs> Just anything but the poo I found in the sand pit. that this isn't just any smack bottom, this isn't a short little whack and a go to your room from dad, this is the big time, this smack bottom has been deployed and drafted by mum, and mum is the big guns, and mum is the one I wronged and I have to pay the price. <laughs> so I wait. And I can hear mum's footsteps coming up the hallway and it sounds like she's got reinforcements. She's cackling like she's just sacrificed a goat to the gods that eat children alive. <laughs> First by peeling them, by slitting open the skin on their toes and pulling up like wallpaper. <laughs> I know she specifically told me not to, but I really shouldn't have eaten that one segment of her mandarin. <laughs> I tell myself I will never eat fruit again. <laughs> of course, this is all hypothetical because after this smack bottom, there is not going to be any more of me left. I will be reduced to a pounded lump of pink flesh like at the butcher Nana goes to. Um, I mentioned at the start that my mum called the smack bottom truck. I wasn't kidding. <laughs> this is actually what I was waiting for. After I deliberately disobeyed her and ate a piece of mandarin, she repeatedly pressed the dial button on the cordless phone and made a prank call to the smack bottom company. <laughs> one extra large smack bottom <laughs> to please be delivered by truck <laughs> to 11 Snell Place, Dellington Christchurch. <laughs>
Of course she was tricking. Of course I didn't believe her. Of course I teased her for being a big dummy and thinking I would fall for that. However, by coincidence, at the exact moment she hung up the phone, a huge truck <laughs> drove past and parked right outside our window. <laughs> Now, actually, my mum is really great. She taught me how to read before I finished preschool. But when I read the word army, printed in big red letters on the side of the truck, obviously skipping over the very enormous salvation, <laughs> which was just a bit beyond my reading comprehension at this time. Now, I had never felt more betrayed and absolutely petrified in my life. Until... Two huge, muscly men jumped out of the front, dressed top to toe in camo gear. <laughs> now, I feel like this is uh, every parent's dream, to um, instill pure dread into your child so that when they try to do anything bad in the future, it stimulates their muscle memory and those feelings of terror and fear stop them doing the bad thing. I mean, I don't drink much, I don't do drugs, and I don't steal anymore, and I did. <laughs> uh, and nor do I do like murder and stuff. <laughs> I mean, like New Zealand has a culture of binge drinking, and I'm not part of it. I can't even. <laughs> I can't even get pressure into this stuff. Okay, so the following are two examples where I think anxiously waiting for the smack bottom trunk has definitely influenced my life. Firstly, I once ran into my crush at the Christchurch Agriculture and Pastoral Show. <laughs> I was about 11, I guess. It was about three years after he wrote me a love note. And I spent the entire time trying to find him again amongst the thousands of people there that day. He, lo he looked a bit like Ryan Reynolds. It was lovely. <laughs> um, another three years after that, <laughs> I was at the AMP show again, but this time with an actual boyfriend, my first ever, and after we had examined the prize-winning pigs, cows, sheep, lambs and rabbits, we found ourselves in the marketplace. I was uh, inelegantly exhibiting the oversized orange Tui jandals he'd given me, and I scuffed them proudly like a badge that said, I have a boyfriend, <laughs> and I'm wearing his shoes. <laughs> uh, he was kind of cool at school and hadn't seemed to have caught on that I wasn't. So I tried really hard to be fun and outgoing and hilarious and open to new experiences. <laughs> Which probably meant I was just screeching insults at him and his friends and hoping to God it was flirting. <laughs> uh, I picked out a couple of friendship bracelets because it would probably be nice for our love to be objectified. And... Um, <laughs> He raised his eyebrows at, at me and kind of wiggled them. And I did it back to him. <laughs> but then all of his friends did it to me. 
and added in some winking and looking at the bracelets in my hand and then at the stall holder and then back to me. And I smiled and I nodded my head like I was keen as, but then I put the bracelets back and said, oh nah, I mean, I usually nick stuff, but this isn't expensive enough for me. <laughs> Secondly, when I was six years old, I began repenting, or, or being interested in repenting for all the wrongs I had done up until then, obviously. My father and I were visiting my great aunt in Blenheim. She's a really cool lady, super gregarious country music junkie, the MC of all these events. She's like a comedian, and she leaves um, singing messages on your voicemail when it's your birthday. Um, I stood naked in the middle of her living room, looking around the room at the pictures of smiling Jesus hanging on her embossed wallpaper above every door. And I spread out my arms like the cast bronze crucified Jesus on the mantelpiece. And as my great aunt tucked my singlet into my knickers and told me that's how you keep warm in winter, <laughs> I turned to my dad and I said, when I get back, when we get back home to Christchurch, um, I want to go to church. So in driving back to Christchurch, we stopped off at St. Oswald's Church in Whadanui. And um, I was six. I had this mega spiritual moment because of the sun and the wild flowers, and the quaint stone masonry, and the light coming through the stained glass. And um, maybe it was, or maybe it wasn't the presence of God I was feeling. Or maybe it was more my first foray into unlocking my own world and stepping out of what I had known and having this feeling of power that I could actually decide my own path, I could follow my own curiosities and beliefs, and I could actually have agency over my own choices, which was a really profound experience to have when you're six years old. <laughs> so that was cool. Anyway, I'm not here to preach at you and try to force you into believing something you don't want to believe, like some arrogant atheist. <laughs> I'm just telling you what I believe. Horrible prank gone awry, or very slick, well-timed parenting move. Whatever you think, I will always have faith in and fear the smack bottom truck. And if that's one of the things that helps me be a good person, then well, good for me. <laughs> Our final storyteller for the evening is award-winning stand-up comedian, performer and quillmaker Johnny Potts. At the time of this podcast, Johnny is performing his show Loose at Bats. Johnny tells us a story that he titled How I Quit Smoking, which he describes as being about a thing that happened recently. Can I get you to please put your hands together for Johnny Potts? Thank you. All right, I know you've been here very long, this has been going on an awful long time, and I'm sorry about that. Um, I, also, I also had to write everything down here because I've got a lot of, I've got other things to do. Basically. And I've got a show opening next week and I had to write it down, so I'm going to read directly off the paper, so don't give me any shit. Okay. 
Okay. Um, uh, this is this is a story I wrote <laughs> called How I Quit Smoking. Years ago, in a second-hand bookshop, I found a slim volume of poetry called Elegies Before Death. Inside the front cover... It's not a fucking joke. I mean, no... <laughs> We're already over time. I timed this this afternoon at like eight minutes, four seconds, and I'm only meant to have seven minutes. So if you laugh at every fucking title... <laughs> Elegies before death. Inside the front cover, someone had written a verse which ended with the words, the real lesson of life is to learn how to die. Directly under this, the same person had scribbled, happy 21st birthday, Peter. <laughs> I started to wonder what learning to die was. I don't believe that there is such a thing as a good death. I could die in battle, in my sleep at 120, or on the right side of 9-11. And it wouldn't make any difference. Some people were like... Because when we think of 9-11, we think of like the victims of 9-11. Some of them were not on the right side. It wouldn't make any difference to me. If I wake up six feet under, it's a bad day. End of story. Okay? So I came to the conclusion that learning to die is really just accepting that you're going to die. You accept you're going to die, and then you wait for it to happen. Most of life is, as the poet said, waiting around to die. Death is the only certainty of life. They say it's death and taxes, but I have enough friends in the arts to know that's not true. <laughs> It's taken me years to accept that I'm going to die. I waited for it to happen. I wanted to wake up one morning aware of my mortality and okay with it instead of just mordantly aware of it. I thought talking about my keen fear of death would help, but all that got me was bored girlfriends. <laughs> but I think I've accepted it now, okay? So a couple of months ago, I go out for a drink. One drink at a swanky bar and I enjoy it slowly and maturely, like an adult man who doesn't have a massive crippling fear of death. <laughs> and then I go to pay, and I feel, I feel strange. Nothing's really happening yet. There's a pulsing in my head. Maybe this is just a head rush from getting up too quickly. I only had one beer, but I did have three cigarettes, and maybe they're hitting me like I'm 14. No, it's more than that. It's more than that. The pulsing's getting stronger. It's thrumming in my ears. It's like huge wings flapping, like dragon wings. And as I start to walk home, it almost smothers the sound of Courtney plays. My right foot and my calf begin to tingle. It's a sharp numbness, like pins and needles. But it's more aggressive and somehow hollow. Something called pins and needles shouldn't feel so sinister. Then my right knee goes. It snaps back too quickly whenever I put my foot down. I feel flushed and confused. The throbbing or thrumming or pulsing sound in my head is intensifying. 
it feels like my brain is expanding and contracting inside my skull. I'm home. The tingling numbness moves up my leg. Healthline says not to move, but I'm afraid if I stop moving, I'll lose the ability to walk. I stay still only when I notice my heart is racing. An ambulance is on the way. I will be still. I will wait. The tingling stabs my abdomen on the right side and keeps moving up my neck, across my face, causing a prickly, sherbet-like fizz to ripple over my lips and tongue. I wait for the ambulance. When the medics arrive, I cannot talk. Sounds are coming out, but they bear no relation to what I am trying to say. I am not able to produce words. I am told to stop trying to speak and just wait until we get to the hospital. I wait. I see familiar streetlights through the window. I have no idea where we are. Hey, how about this? The doctor at the emergency department saw me do stand-up last night. <laughs> He asks if I can write. I scribble an arc of poorly rendered figure eights. They take the pen away. I wait. I have my head scanned. My blood is drawn. I'm put on a drip. Electrodes are attached. My blood pressure is checked. I'm given some injections. There seem to be a lot of people assigned to my case. They tap up notes on a keyboard to my left. It seems to me they're being more thorough than they should be. These are notes that I fear will be coroner-friendly. <laughs> the hospital lights are bright. The doctor stands with his arms crossed. It has been a couple of hours. He looks grim. He does not look like he is waiting. He looks like he is stuck. I vomit blood. Every second, I am stuck in panic. I think I am going to die. I am like this for hours. I am aware not of my mortality, but my actual and imminent death. But I don't bargain with God. I don't even think about God. This is too important. Why would I call a stranger? I take in the details of the room, and I wait. Sometime after three, they wheel me into the high dependency unit. A nurse is stationed at the end of my bed. She checks my vital signs regularly, disrupting my already light, erratic sleep. I am told later that I managed two words overnight. I repeat them from under the sheets. Can't cope. Can't cope. More of my speech returns when it gets light. A nurse takes my blood pressure and tells me I cannot eat or drink anything. She uses the words, your stroke, my stroke. I had a stroke. Strokes are things that disable people, that kill people, my stroke. I wait to hear more. A speech therapist sees me. I have more head scans. They look at my heart. They take more blood. They check my vital signs. They say I threw up blood last night, 
because they gave me thrombolysis. That is, they thinned my blood in case I was having an aneurysm, and this caused me to bleed into my stomach. Footnote, this treatment cost you taxpayers about $2,000. <laughs> I wait. I wait for more information. I wait to be moved from the HDU to my own room. I wait for it to happen again and finish me off. About five o'clock, a neurological registrar sees me, uh, tells me I am likely to make a full recovery. They can see no signs of damage. That is, they see no signs of brain death. I only now realize that I have been waiting to hear that I have no signs of brain death. Brain death. I get my own room. Nurses come in all through the night, but I get my own room. The next day I see a specialist. This is what I've really been waiting for. <clears throat> he has read my notes, seen the scans, the tests. He will tell me about my stroke. He says he does not believe I have had a stroke at all. <laughs> there is no sign of any damage or any reason for whatever this was. It might have been a migraine, but I don't get migraines. He does not know what happened. At one point, he runs through some of my symptoms and says, this leaves us in a very difficult position, diagnostically. <laughs> he discharges me. It is a bright winter day, and I remember the obscure word used to describe the feeling of sun in winter. Apricity. I'm tired when I get home. I go into my room. It feels like going back to a familiar holiday destination. It feels like returning from a hallucinogenic excursion. It feels like waking up five minutes early and stretching. I put on music. I see the sunlight coming through my window. I lie on my bed and wait. That concludes our first Wellington issue of The Water Cooler. The Water Cooler in Wellington is performed live at BATS each month and tickets are available off their website. Of course, this would not be possible without the team at The Wireless and our founder and director, Sarah Finnegan-Walsh.